1: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Josh Lambert, academic director of the Yiddish Book Center, who also teaches at UMass Amherst. Here to talk about his new book, Unclean Lips, Obscenity, Jews, and American Culture, published in 2014 by New York University Press.
1: Josh, welcome to New Books and Jewish Studies. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. Well,
0: it's great to have you. So, Josh, maybe you can begin by telling us briefly uh, what is obscenity. Um, And given that you're an expert in literature, uh, have obscene books been a big part of American history?
1: Well, uh, obscenity is notoriously difficult to define, so we could spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, for me, the definition that was relevant was the one that went into effect in American law in the, ni- in the late 19th century uh after the sort of efforts of Anthony Comstock, who founded the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And basically what got enshrined in law through his efforts was a definition of obscenity that meant that books that um, – had lewd or lascivious contents or used taboo language uh, could not be could not be mailed. Um, there was also, as I discussed in the book, uh, a separate issue connected with obscenity at that period, which was uh, information about birth control and contraception. Um, and I discuss that in the book. But the main sort of kind of obscenity that I'm interested in is the one that centers on descriptions of sex and the use of taboo language, uh, the four-letter words that we all think of as uh, as indecent somehow.
0: Mm-hmm. Comstock is uh, an interesting figure that appears uh, in the introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about him? What, 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 was, what were his motivations?
1: You know, he's been, he's been written about a lot and, uh, and is a fascinating figure. Um, the way that most of the people who've written about Comstock understand him is – as representing a kind of um, Christian uneasiness with the changing circumstances of America at the time. Uh, So many of the scholars who have written about him have pointed out that so many of his victims were outsiders of one kind or another. And and by victims, I mean the people that he uh, chased after and tried to prosecute as purveyors of obscenity. So. You know, Jews were one major category of um, of people that he that he went after, but also uh, women and other immigrants. Um, And people have interpreted that, I think, quite rightly to say that uh, to to understand uh, Comstock as having expressed this kind of anxiety about the way that uh, the American population was changing and that the possibilities of what you could do uh as an american uh were were sort of changing under his feet
0: right it sounds like it's a little hard to you know think about what life was like in the late 19th century i mean we today we think of you know the internet and everybody can sort of get whatever they want on there but but um it, it you know th- uh, things were limited back then and it was much more there's much more of a christian morality
1: right i mean and i think there was an assumption uh you know, a a fairly widespread assumption that Christian morality was the dominant one in America and that that was worth fighting for and protecting. Um, Certainly in some of uh, Comstock's speeches, uh, that commitment to Christian virtue came at the expense, rhetorically at least, of, uh, of, of Jews who represented something else.
0: Right. So your book asks a question that, you know, once you've posted, it's, it's so obvious. But the question is, why have so many Jews been involved with obscenity cases? Um, so before we get into sort of why, has the question been asked before or is it one that's not really, we don't really like to discuss?
1: Part of the reason that I started working on the project was precisely that there are so many excellent studies of obscenity in American culture by lawyers, by literary scholars, by um, historians of various kinds. And the evidence sort of piles up of uh, Jews' involvement in the field. And yet in so many of those books, the only time the Jewishness of anyone involved gets mentioned is when it's unavoidable in a primary source, when someone mentions their own Jewishness. But um, those scholars who who, do excellent work, I think, were um, hesitant to address the question in the way that I do because the connection of Jews with transgressive sexuality has been such a common trope in anti-Semitic discourse. And there's such a, a worry that by discuss even by discussing it, you can play into anti-Semitic stereotypes. So for the most part, there hadn't been a- any kind of um, extensive or a full length study of the question. There had been little pieces here and there, uh, but nothing nothing that took on the question yeah, uh, you know, at, at the length and, and with the intensity that I did, uh, which was why it was worth doing. Uh, although even doing it in that way is a fairly complicated project.
0: Right. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what were the roles that American Jews played in obscenity cases. Uh, you know, what professions did they, did they hold that sort of predisposed them to, to get involved? And is there, is there any sort of economic reason why Jews might've been involved in these particular cases?
1: Um, Sure, I, I think that uh, when we look through the case history, so I mean just to, to give a sense of how I got into the topic as a literary scholar, i was I started to read back through legal histories to see you know what were the major cases uh, when did uh, laws change about how you what you could write in a book or how you could talk about sex in American culture, and I started to find cases with names on them like. Rosen and Roth and Cohen and Ginsburg. And those are names that obviously made me curious to see who those people were. Um, in many of the cases they were, um, you know, to give examples, uh, Rosen was the Rosen in the 1890s, uh, who became the subject of a Supreme court case was, uh, the editor of a, of a magazine about theater, a sort of saucy Broadway magazine. Um, The Ginsburg, who was a Supreme Court, you know, who has a Supreme Court case named after him, owned a newsstand on Long Island. Um, some of them were some of the people who got involved were producers of birth control materials or contraceptive, contraceptive devices. Um, and of course, many publishers of erotica or obscenity, um, like Sam Roth, Samuel Roth, who was the subject of a major case in the 1950s, um. There were also film exhibitors uh, I'm trying to think what else publishers as I said um, and uh, people in in all the sort of intermediary fields uh, in the distribution of culture um, that's the the role of Jews in all those kind of areas was of course what put them in uh, in the line of fire for obscenity prosecutions but what fascinated me and is something that I haven't completely answered is not why they occasionally found themselves on the wrong side of obscenity law, but why Jews were so commonly um the people who were willing to take a case all the way to the Supreme Court, right? Like not to just give up and stop appealing, uh pay whatever fines or serve whatever time and 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 be done with it, but really to keep fighting these cases and um uh and by doing so insert themselves into the larger legal history. Um, you know, I, I should also mention that uh, Jews were extremely prominent as lawyers uh, and judges in these cases. Um, and I, you know, one of the things I like to always, an example I, I always like to use that that compelled me as I started to look into the subject more was that um, in this key moment when obscenity law was being uh, tested and articulated after World War I, um, the lawyers around the ACLU uh, who had founded it were mostly Protestant, and they refused to take obscenity cases. They wanted to fight at that time uh, against uh, the suppression of political speech, and they thought obscenity would distract them from that cause. But there were a handful of Jewish lawyers who were associated with the ACLU and those were the ones who took on the major obscenity cases of the 20s. So there was a case where I said to myself, uh, there was a clear pattern where Jewish professionals were taking a different path than their non-Jewish peers in the same field. Mm-hmm.
0: And the involvement of Jews as you know, litigants, lawyers, book publishers, judges, justices, You know, it kind of um, it goes on for so many decades that it it would be hard to say, right, that their European background, you know, their experience with European censorship sort of, you know, made them favorable to to free speech. Right.
1: Right. I I, part of the argument of the book is that uh, precisely that to ask the question of all the Jews in America is the wrong way to ask it, because uh, as we move from the late 19th century into the book goes into the early two thousands, um, the circumstances change so much that uh, the motivations of an individual, uh, very rarely, um, uh, fit the same pattern from, from one period to it, to another one. So, uh, it's exactly right that I, I, I'm very, um, skeptical of arguments of essentializing arguments that suggest that, uh, Something about the way that uh, Jews experienced European culture or experienced immigration um, conclusively pre- predetermined their responses to obscenity controversies. That just that seems wrong to me from the material that I look at. Um, even though in some specific cases, particular Jewish experiences are very, very important and become uh, very uh, uh, very useful to look at in understanding why a group of people or particular individuals acted the way they did around uh obscenity cases.
0: Right. Okay, so in the late 19th century there is this sexual anti-semitism if I can call it that. Can you tell us a little bit about um the ideas about sexual abnormality as they pertain to Jews and and maybe you know that'll lead us into to the first chapter um which um tells uh talks about the figure of a uh, Dreyer. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about him.
1: Sure, sure. So, I was, so when we look back to, um, some of the foundational texts of modern antisemitism, like, uh, Edouard Drummond's, uh, La France Juive, uh, you see, uh, in that text and then in the American text that, um, adapted and mostly, uh, re- reproduced the claims that had been made in France, very explicit, uh, statements about, uh, Jews' sexual abnormality, statements about, uh, Jews being behind obscene publications, about Jews speaking in uh, indecent and obscene ways, and then particularly um, a, a very pernicious set of claims around Jewish men's um, sexual abnormality uh, there was there were claims made uh, by several uh, fairly prominent anti-semitic figures uh, that Uh, Jewish men were predisposed to um, what we would now call pedophilia to child molestation um, and could not control their sexual urges. Uh, Dreiser, Theodore Dreiser, this major American author, um, uh, one of the most prominent authors of the early 20th century, um, writes this play uh, called the hand of the Potter uh, in uh, the uh, uh, in about, I think it comes out in nineteen nineteen, um, that uh, takes as its inspiration a very famous uh, national case that had happened a few years before, where a young Jewish man named Nathan Swartz uh, had been uh, accused of and and sought for uh, murdering a fourteen-year-old girl, uh, and event- and that case ended with him committing suicide and confessing the crime. Uh, Dreiser's play uh, takes that as its inspiration and describes a young Jewish man uh, who comes home from prison, finds that he can't control his urges, um, sees a, a young, young girl who is his neighbor and rapes and murders her and eventually commits suicide. Um, it, it's a brutal play, very disturbing. <laughs> Many of his contemporaries found it um, uh, shocking and appalling um and in fact uh HL Mencken told him that he should not publish it he should just burn it um but what was a fascinating piece of that history is that Jewish uh literary intellectuals of the moment uh were precisely the ones who praised it and said it was an important uh work of art
0: and then um as we get later into the 20th century um you know we talk we talk about nazism and then we get to the the um, sort of awkwardly written. Uh, Robert Rimmer's The Herod Experiment. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So this is that's a that's a novel that I was uh, fascinated to discover. A uh, very popular, uh, best-selling mass-market uh, sex utopia novel from the sixties. Um, it uh, that's where the first chapter of of my book climaxes because what that chapter has been tracing, uh, starting with Dreiser, is the notion. That a free and open discussion of sexuality and representation of sexuality could somehow serve as a counter to anti-Semitism. So the reason that people like Abe Khan and Ludwig Lewison loved and appreciated Dreiser's play about a Jewish child molester was that what Dreiser was trying to accomplish there was to show that Jews were no more prone to that kind of behavior than anyone else. He was trying to import Freudian ideas about sexual um, pathology uh, into American uh, discussions of uh, this kind of crime. Um, Rimmer uh, writing uh, about 50 years later um, is looking at uh, the possibilities for new sexual freedoms in the 60s, seeing them as incredibly exciting. Um, He's, particularly interested in what we call polyamory um, as a new form of uh, social organization that can be that could be very transformative. And uh, fascinatingly, strangely, at the center of this novel, which it basically takes place on a college campus that has gone co-ed and uh, the rooming has become co-ed so that the students all have sex with uh, each other and one another. And somehow that leads them into a kind of sexual utopian uh, community. Um, But what's amazing about that novel and very strange is that Rimmer includes a Jewish character uh, among the the group that he describes and spends a lot of time an almost absurd amount of time focusing on that character's Jewish family and the the sort of Yiddish words in his speech and uh, his parents and how they feel about all this. Where he doesn't do that for any of the other characters, and I was interested when I discovered that to try to figure out why on earth a Rimmer who is writing a novel that you know was, is a fairly straightforward romanesque about um, sexual freedom would spend so much time on issues of Jewishness. And the answer that I found was partly personal. It was that Rimmer had been involved in a group marriage with a Jewish couple and had found those particular people very accepting and warm and they were an important part of his life um, but it was also the case that in the years after World War II, Americans were looking f- for uh, ways to respond to the horrible genocide of, of the Holocaust and try to trying to find ways to understand how it had happened and a lot of people for various reasons looked at Diseased sexuality or uh, prudish or repressed sexuality is at the source of, of that kind of violence. And so they they felt and I'm, Rimmer expresses this quite clearly that once people uh, could express themselves sexually, they wouldn't no longer need to uh, act out in, in a horrible acts of violence.
0: Um you, you say in the book that you consider a, a wide swath of texts uh, that that is certainly not an exaggeration um there you know everything from um, modernist novels to uh graphic novels and everything in between I want to maybe you can tell us briefly um who is Henry Roth um I, I I think he may be sort of well known but I'm I'm not sure and you know the, the second chapter which deals with with Roth um you know highlights the power of words um, you know, Roth's book Call It Sleep is is very much about language itself. So I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts about how words themselves, you know, can have this perverse or dirty meaning.
1: Right. Roth is a, a fascinating figure. Many people should know and and will know his uh incredible novel Call It Sleep, um which is widely thought to be one of the great American novels about immigration. Um I part of the impetus for the project as a whole was that novel which is such a masterpiece and yet so strange and disturbing it's about a young child who is really racked by guilt and shame uh about his own body and his own um uh his own family and uh led by his by his guilt to do uh something uh very terrible that almost ends up uh killing him um in the in that book, uh, in that novel, there's a scene where the little boy is in Cheder uh, in uh, sort of traditional Jewish uh, education for children and is learning uh, the chapter of Isaiah where uh, Isaiah says, uh, I am a man of unclean lips. And that's, of course, where the title of my book comes from. The little boy uh, putting that piece of uh, traditional text together with what he's learned on the street and, and heard in his family thinks that Isaiah must be a man of unclean lips because he said taboo words, uh, because he said words like fucking and shit. And uh, what, what um, David, the little boy in the novel, uh, comes to feel is by saying these words himself, he's defiled himself and become unclean, and he needs to seek a kind of purification. Um, what fascinated me about the novel was not just this, Uh, sort of portrait the psychological portrait of the child but the fact that roth used these these words these taboo words in his novel many people know that um, james joyce's ulysses was banned uh, for you know more than a decade in america because it included those words Um, and at the time that roth was writing his book which was his first novel and he was writing it in a in a fairly strange situation he he had a very unpleasant childhood um, was certainly not secure in any sense. Um, it's astonishing to think that he would use the same words that had gotten one of the greatest artists in the world banned in America. Um, it's perplexing to think that he thought he could somehow get away with it. And so what I argue in this chapter is that um, this shows us how much was at stake and how much um, the use of these kinds of transgressive words um, could indicate the seriousness of a project and could, in a sense, ennoble an artistic project and show that it had um, uh, avant-garde aims. Uh, so so Roth is really interesting in that case because even though his book was never banned, uh, it did famously sort of fade from um, the public consciousness for 30 years and only returned uh, and was republished as a paperback and celebrated uh, in the 1960s after the laws of obscenity had changed. So it's a kind of fascinating case of a writer trying to use um, avant-garde strategies and uh, doing it in such a way that it may have backfired. But I think by paying attention to the issue of obscenity in the novel, which people uh, haven't done before, it helps us to understand the, the sort of strange publication history that, that Roth had.
0: You mentioned that in the late 19th century, uh, ideas about obscenity were, were actually tied to ideas about uh, reproduction and um, you know a- actual sexual practice. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the other Roth who appears predominantly in the book, uh, Philip Roth from Chapter 3, um, and the use of sexual allegory um, to describe dilemmas of cultural reproduction. What, what's going on there?
1: Uh right, I think people who come to read my book uh will often feel that there's a surprising there's surprisingly little Philip Roth in it. Um I think they, uh many people who, you know, hear about the subject think that that it'll be, you know, mostly about about Roth. Um what uh fascinates me about you know Roth's novel Portnoy's Complaint, uh which I hope many people will think of when they think of the question of Jews and obscenity especially in American culture. Um Is that the strategies he uses uh, to talk about the relationship between Jews and non Jews? um, And, you know, those strategies are very explicit descriptions of the sexual relationships between his Jewish protagonist and non Jewish women, and also um, uh, discussions of masturbation and other sexual practices are fairly typical of Jewish literature. From the late 19th century on, um, we can find many, many texts in which um, questions of assimilation of cultural reproduction of the relationship between Jewish and non-Jewish cultures are figured uh, through the romantic or sexual relationships of um of different characters. Um, this is true in Hebrew and Yiddish literature. It's true certainly in American Jewish literature and English um, as early as uh, the 1880s and 1890s. Um, Roth, of course, takes that idea that you tell the story of the relationship between Jews and non-Jews through the relationship of two people to its um, obscene extreme, right? making it about the very bodily relationships between Jews and non-Jews. There's a scene in Portnoy's Complaint where um, Portnoy is having sex with a young woman that he calls the Pilgrim, a very, uh, sort of, uh, a very, uh, uh, old, from an old American family. And she is giving him oral sex and she is choking and, uh, can't bear the sort of size and presence of his physical body. Um, and, Of course, this is uh, a sort of classic scene, but it, I argue that it figures the bodily discomfort that, uh, that Roth was seeing a certain segment of Americans experiencing as Jews became more accepted and, you know, welcomed into different kinds of jobs and different kinds of institutions, um, that there was still a kind of, um, nervousness and discomfort with Jewish bodies. Um, that, uh, that kind of allegory which is um, somewhat disturbing and strange and off-putting, is fascinatingly extended in a novel that I I love to have the opportunity to write about in this book, Adele Wiseman's Crackpot, which is a novel, uh, a very frankly feminist novel, about um, an obese Jewish prostitute in Winnipeg um, whose sexual relationships, I argue, uh, figure – a very positive relationship towards Jewishness, but in a very transgressive and um, uncomfortable way.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a few weeks ago, we had um, Mark Shapiro on the show talking about um, how the Orthodox Jews censor. He's, you know, his book starts with that sort of famous picture from the Yiddish newspapers uh, with President Obama um, during the Bin Laden raid, and Hillary Clinton, se- then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, has been. Um, you know removed from the photo, so maybe you can tell us a little bit in chapter four about um the you know yiddish censorship or or orthodox and traditional censorship does it sort of show the the wide spectrum of the variety of jewish experience
1: um, what what fascinates me about the censorship of sex within Jewish culture by orthodox authorities or um, equally by Yiddish cultural authorities is the degree to which um those kinds of censorship don't get government support. Uh, So it's very interesting that it's not that Jews aren't censorious people, that somehow Jews are less apt to want to censor or control the way that people talk about sex than anybody else. Um, It's very important to think about the relationship of people to state power and the way they use state power to enforce those kinds of um, desires or or, uh, feelings. So so that we can point to many cases in which rabbis in America or elsewhere thought that a text was um, too much or disgusting or repulsive and told their followers or told anyone who would listen, oh, no one should read that text. That's terrible. Um, the classic example that's pointed out is in the Shulchan Aruch, like one of the most authoritative um, rabbinic texts uh, that there's ever been. Uh, it, it explicitly says that there's a particular, uh, a particular uh, poem that no one should ever read. Um, and yet, if you go through and look for historical sources, you'll find that other rabbis or other Jewish communities ignore those kind of edicts and read whatever they want. And there's never been a real sense of, um, Jews having the power, uh, to enforce those kinds of ideas about um, uh, obscenity, except, of course, in the state of Israel, where, uh, of course, Jewish uh, courts frequently uh, enforce obscenity laws. Um, so what fascinated me about uh, Orthodox uh, attempts to control sexuality, as well as uh, Yiddish cultural examples in America, was that they rely on ideas of modesty. Um, they appeal to the modesty of their listeners and their audiences and Ask them to um, self-censor, to uh, avoid those things that are uh, those texts or cultural representations that are offensive. Um, And of course, uh, appeals to modesty have a very complex uh, interwoven relationship with ideas of obscenity. And what I spend a lot of time in Chapter 4 doing is showing how um, these kinds of uh, modest ideas very frequently contain within them or reflect uh, uh, tendencies towards extreme or explicit sexuality. Um, I spend time, for instance, looking at a series of polemics written in the 1990s by Orthodox Jewish thinkers calling for modesty, uh, recommending modesty, and yet doing it in ways that are um, as sexually explicit as just about uh, any texts you can find. So it's a a fascinating kind of double edged sword to how modesty works. And I think it's a really important model for um, American culture to look at, uh, especially after the 1960s, when basically American law got out of the business of um, uh, of controlling sexual expression. Right. Since since several legal decisions in the mid 60s and early 70s. Um, It's very unusual for any American novelist to get in any trouble for any kind of representation of sex whatsoever. And yet, of course, that doesn't mean that no one's controlling uh, the representation of sexuality. It just means that the terrain has shifted so that authors and publishers and readers are the ones who get to um, influence that rather than, say, postal workers or uh, priests or uh, government officials. Mm
0: hmm. Well, Josh, we've taken up a lot of your time. So any parting thoughts you'd like to share? And uh, what are you working on next?
1: Oh, thanks. Um, I uh, enjoyed all this time that I spent uh, working on obscenity. And uh, it seemed to me that part of the fascinating issue of the story was the role of Jewish publishers and the way that they influenced American culture. So a lot of the work I've been uh, doing more recently is looking at Jewish publishers more broadly in America, and how they represented Jewishness, and how they were involved in various kinds of um, uh, debates about um, other other subjects—not not obscenity so much as uh, debates about uh, how uh, American culture should be regulated and um, what's fair and ethical in uh, the f- the field of literature and art.
0: Josh, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Unclean Lips, Obscenity, Jews, and American Culture, published in 2014 by NYU Press. The author is Josh Lambert. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.